Today's Bible study is called, uh, it's in Ephesians chapter 4, and it's called, Let Him Do His Thing. So let's, let's just say one more word of prayer, because uh, without the Lord here, all this is just jibber-jabber, and uh, it's not really profitable for anything. So let's, let's ask the Lord to bless this. Jesus, we, we give you this time. We pray that there would be great fruit from this time. Uh, Lord, not because we have um, such wisdom and not because we're such wonderful people, but God, because you are gracious to your children. And you have a word that you would be willing to share with us by your spirit. So I don't know what that is for each person in here, but God, I pray that your spirit would, like a, a sharp sword, would, would divide exactly where you wanted to go into our hearts. Jesus, we trust you in this. And Lord, we are here as a church because of your spirit and because of your word. And we gather, Lord, in belief and in faith, God, that you have a great and powerful plan for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, two years ago, well, yeah, it was about, no, it was last year, last October, we took the boys on a trip to Disneyland. It was one of those surprise trips where we actually went out for a wedding. We only told them we were going to a wedding. And so we went to the wedding, and it's, you know, super boring for kids because it's a wedding. And there we're like in San Diego, and, and, and so we had this all planned for months and months and months, though, that we were going to surprise them. So we were waking up the, the, the day after the wedding, and we were like, hey, what are we going to do today, guys? And they're like, aren't we just going home? And we're like, yeah, that's our plan. But if we could do anything, what would you guys want to do? And they're like, well, go to the beach maybe or, you know, but, but John, he was really, he loves Disney. If you know anything about John, if you've ever met my son, John, he loves Disney. He probably has every Disney movie memorized. And so he has this passion for Disney. So he's like, I'd love to go to Disneyland. And so as they were saying these different things, we would say, hey, if you would like to go to the beach, raise your hand. And they say, yeah, and we do this game where they raise their hand. And would you, if you'd like to go just go to the middle of the desert and do nothing, raise your hand, and none of them raise their hand. If you would like to go to Disneyland, raise your hand, and they all put their hands up really, really high. And then we were just like, okay, let's go. And they were like, what, what? And they started freaking out and just so excited. Okay, so we get to Disneyland, and this all has a, a purpose, this story. So we're going there, and we're, 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 we're going to that new Cars Land. Has anyone been to the new Cars Land? That's a fine feat of engineering right there. It looks exactly like the movie, okay? So you go in, and there's Flo's Diner, and there's the, the, the car ride. You get to ride in the cars. And as we're going in, John is just amazed. And he's so, his eyes are as big as saucers, and his, he's just so excited. And then we start to hear this, this music. And, it, and, and this car, like one of those, like, lowrider cars with all the, the big speakers comes out and it has all these like dancers around it and they just start having this dance party in the middle of the street right there in Carsland. And John gets picked by the people to come and dance. Maybe they saw the look on his face, which was just like, I am happier than I've ever been in my life right now. I'm so excited. And so maybe they saw that, but they pick him and they say, go ahead and dance. And if you know John, okay, John has no care in the world about what people think of him. So John starts dancing, but all the other people are just kind of like dancing, you know, I, I'm a horrific dancer, so I just proved that to whoever was watching me. But John like starts doing the robot and he, and he goes on and does it. And he's, he's so good at it that everyone is just watching him amazed and kind of like laughing and at one point, I was like, should I, should I go out there and give someone else a chance? But no, every, all the dancers were like, no, let him go, let him. And everyone was just having an awesome time watching him. And I thought, I was like, man, he is just having the best time of his life. He's hanging out with his heroes, and he's just so happy. So the joy on his face, and, and actually the joy that he brought me and the workers and everyone else watching him was just amazing. He was just lost in the thrill of being with his heroes. And, I, and I, I tell you that story as we get into this, because a lot of times church becomes a bummer and a burden, 
and getting up on Sunday becomes difficult. And maybe if you come out on Wednesdays, it can be hard to, to separate that time in the middle of the week to come out and spend time with the Lord. It becomes difficult. But not when you're like John. Not when church for you is like spending time with your hero. Then you can do the robot and you don't care what people are, you know, it's, it just becomes an absolute joy to spend time with Jesus and with his people. So we get now to chapter 4, verse 15 is where we begin today. And it says, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him, the head, who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joint and knit together by every joint supplies, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So in the church, how do we know we're getting it right? How do we know what church is supposed to look like? I don't think it's a stretch to have you consider what church looked like with Jesus and the disciples versus what it became throughout the 5th century, 6th century, through the 10th century and 12th century of this pageantry and, and rules and, and religious actions. How did that transition happen? I don't think it's difficult, a difficult question for us to, to have to consider because I can't imagine Jesus with a, a fancy robe and these things and, 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 and saying a, a sermon in a language that people didn't even understand. I can't imagine that that's how it goes. So what is the church supposed to look like? Well, here it says that we have a direction and a destination. And both of those are Jesus himself. It says that we grow up into, in all things into him who is the head. So the church is to have a direction, a way that we're going. And it shouldn't be to get bigger or more people in the seats. It's not that type of growth. It's growth in a direction. Are we becoming more like Christ? Are we going towards Christ? When you fail, are you repenting and turning back to Christ? When you succeed, are you humbling yourselves and giving all glory to Christ? And that's the direction. And he's also the destination. We grow up into the head. We grow up into just life. We grow up into him, not bigger buildings, not to look like other churches, not to be like what we see on TV or hear on the radio, not to be cool. That's not the goal of the church. We are not a pyramid with the pastor on top and all the other people holding up his pinnacle of authority and glory. We're not a bus with the pastor driving us around and we're all just sitting in there not even really sure where the next stop is. We're not either of those things. We are a body. And each one of us is different but equal under the head, which is Jesus himself. A Mormon acquaintance once pushed Mark Twain into an argument about the issue of polygamy. And after long and tedious expositions justifying the practice, the Mormon demanded that Twain cite any passage of scripture expressly forget, forbidding polygamy, having more than one wife. And Mark Twain said, nothing is easier. No man can have two masters. <laughs> and in church, it's supposed to be the same thing. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the head. Jesus is supposed to be the ruler, the boss. In many churches, that's not the case. They are following a man, or they are following a plan, or they are following what the world says. But the only true form of church government should be a theocracy, not a democracy, not voting listening to what Jesus has to say. And I was really bummed when I was about 12 years old. I was attending a, a Calvary Chapel, which is what, what we are. 
And, uh, and our former church government is kind of the, the Moses model where you have a, a pastor, but a board uh, elders that help that pastor to lead. And, uh, and, and it's, that's just what it was, okay? And there was another guy that I knew, and he was an older gentleman in his, well, this might offend, but he was in his 50s, maybe 40s. <laughs> Maybe not older. Let's, let me back up 10 seconds. Rewind. There was a gentleman I knew. And I saw him as an authority in my life. And, and I was talking to him about the Lord. And I was pretty excited about church and going to church and learning about the Lord. And he said, you know, that's great. But your church has a weird form of church government. And, and I think it should be presbytery, which means that the, the people should all vote on who the pastor is. And the people should all vote, and, which is fine, too. And, but the way that it was communicated to me really bummed me out because I felt, and it was true, that he looked down on me because of the church I went to and because of the way that he, he thought that the church government should be. And see, the truth of the matter is any sort of church government will work just fine if the people are listening to Jesus. Any form of church government works great. If the pastor or the leader or the leaders or the people are humbling themselves to listen to God's word and be obedient. And that's the, just the truth of the matter. So I was pretty bummed about that. But as we're looking at the church, we see that it's supposed to be what Jesus communicates to us that we do. And he is doing that. I think a lot of times, though, he's just not as concerned as we are about certain things. Maybe he doesn't really care about what color carpet we have, or the, the building that we meet in. And so I believe that he does tell us what he wants of the church. He tells us actually all the time what to do. In this verse that we just read, he says to love one another. He says to edify one another. He says to edify one another in love. He's, he's very clear about what it is to be. But, but see, those things don't make a church famous. Those things don't make a church popular. Not as popular as when we, we have an extreme message or we have a, a fabulous speaker. No, when we're just loving each other and building up each other, it's kind of a quiet deal. But that's what Jesus is asking us to do. But he is interested in growth. It says here, he's interested in growth. I think it's just a different kind than most people are, are concerned about. When we are all loving, and when we're all edifying each other, and when we're all caring for one another, it causes the growth, it says, of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And what that means is the growth that Jesus is concerned about is not in numbers, although that will naturally happen. It's in the efficiency of God's people loving one another. It's on more of us caring about one another and less of us caring about our agenda. More of us being open when we go to church to just serve the person that God puts in our life and less of us coming in looking to be served. That's the growth that Jesus is looking for. He's looking for quality over quantity. He's fine just waiting for his children to develop rather than scrapping them for a newer, better version in the draft. Man, I wish we would have kept Tebow. Little Broncos humor. Because God doesn't treat people in his body like a professional sports team. We are his body, we are his treasure, his friends that he's not going to give up on. He sees the value in you even if you don't see it for yourself. He sees the finished product when he looks at you. And he doesn't make decisions based on what you are now, but what you will be when he's finished with you. And because you have Jesus inside you, the Holy Spirit, you are a perfect addition to his body. I'm going to say that again. Because you have Jesus inside you, the Holy Spirit, you are a perfect addition to the body of Christ, to church. And the church is so 
broken without you. So, when we come to church and that person comes up who always annoys us, that guy or girl at church that you think, how did they get in here? Who gave them an invite? Jesus chose them. They have something to offer. They have some gift that he has chosen them to have that's going to bless our church. And so let's help them walk in that gift, walk in what God has for them by encouraging them in love and by edifying them, coming alongside them and building them up to walk with Jesus. Because the body is right when we are right with the head. If we had 500 people show up next week, it does not mean we are doing things right. We have to remember that. It doesn't. If we have 50 people raise their hands to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, that does not mean we're doing things right. But if we are loving one another passionately, sacrificially, that means we're doing things right. And when that weird person, that guy that annoys us, the guy we don't understand, or the girl that's just off right now, when we decide to love them where they're at, to see them as Christ sees them, we will be being the body of Christ, the way that he wants us to be. We don't have to cut him because it throws the ball funny. Maybe he just has a gift to win close games. All right, enough Tebow jokes. And don't ever think that you're not a perfect addition to the body of Christ. Even the worst of us can serve as a bad example. And Jesus has no regrets for putting you on his team, adopting you as a son, making you a part of his own body. He loves you, and that's never going to change. And so we get to verse 17. And in verse 17, it says, This I say, and therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. So Jesus has brought you into his body. He's picked you in the draft and put you on his team. So what should our lives look like now? You know, the first thing they always do in the draft, I don't know why this is on my mind so much right now, but they give you the jersey, right? It always has number one, number one draft pick, and they have your name on the back and your team colors. And when Jesus puts you on the team, there's a way that we're supposed to look. And it should not be like the world. We should not walk like we did before. And like a prisoner takes off his prison clothes when he's released, we take off our old lifestyle when we come to the Lord and receive his life. Can you imagine someone walking down the street with the stripy pajamas? And you come up to them and say, oh, it looks like you were, <laughs> you were released from prison. And they say, oh, yes, I was released from prison. It's, I'm so happy. I've served my sentence. I am free. And your first question for them is, why are you still wearing those clothes then? That's supposed to be the first thing that comes off. And yet, many in the church are still wearing their prison clothes. They have yet to take off their old life. There's a wave of thought flowing throughout the church today in the modern world that we need to show the world that we're really not that different from them at all. That we are basically the same thing. That they should come to church because we are just as entertaining or fun as everything else the world has to offer. In fact, church is just like primetime TV. And the problem with that is it's a big, fat, stinking lie. We are not fun <laughs> or entertaining. And the little bit that we are, it's not that funny. I try to make funny jokes, 
and it doesn't work all the time. But that's not the point. And it's dishonesty. It's a dishonest lie, and it's a trick to try to lure them to try to get saved by accident. And, and they come into church. Maybe they're invited, and they say, you said these people were cool. You said they were hip. You said I would have fun, and none of those things are true. See, I pray it's different. We should be inviting people to church knowing that they are going to hear the truth, that they have offended a holy God. Well, that's not very comfortable to hear. Here, let me invite you to church to tell you how you've wronged someone, that they are sinners, yet God has compassion and mercy offered to them in salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a harsh reality, yet it's loving. It's the truth. It's both the bad news and the good news. And it stands apart from what the world tells them, which the world has is, is just got this big message out there that you're all right and nothing is wrong and God has no authority over you. You didn't even come from God. You came from monkeys and they're not judging you. And so God does, can't judge you. The world doesn't want them to be uh, want us to have an authority. But as the church, we come and we invite them in and we say, no, there is an authority. And here's the truth about where you're at, but here is the grace that God has to offer you. But to have the world think that we're cool or we're like them, or we're another version of AA is not a good thing. In fact, it's a terrible thing. When we're not the light of the world, where are they getting their light? We're just as dark as they are. And us trying to win the respect of the world, in reality, we lose what we had to offer them. We don't invite them in saying, we have it all together. We invite them in saying, we have discovered a solution to our vile old man, our sin nature. We have discovered a solution. Come and join us with that. We offer life. We offer salvation. We offer forgiveness of sins. We have love to offer them, which the world isn't. Look at what we have right now and tell me it's not a better to offer them Jesus than, or look at what they have right now, what's described for us here, and tell me it's not better to have Jesus than what they have. This is how the Bible, what we just read, describes their life, that they have a futility of mind that they walk in. The way they think is broken. It will not lead to anything worthy of God. It will not bring them what they really want or what they really desire. It will not get them out of their sin. And it says they have a darkened understanding that they walk in, which means they don't understand the judgment coming. They don't understand the love of God. They don't understand the grace of Jesus. They don't understand having peace with God. They don't understand why nothing brings them satisfaction. They don't understand the meaning of life. They don't understand the meaning of suffering or death. And they don't understand how you and I don't have fear of dying or suffering. They don't understand. Their understanding is darkened. And it says that they walk alienated from the life of God, which means they don't experience the forgiveness that we do when we totally screw up and God is there with open arms as we repent. They don't experience the love we do. They don't experience the restoration that we do when we have failed so long and yet God restores us by his spirit. They don't experience the fullness of life and joy that we do. The book of Philippians is clear that the, the ministry of a believer is to be joyful in the midst of their life. And that is the most tempting way that we can invite people in is when they see the joy in your life. And they don't experience 
that peace of God that we do. And when the doctor says, you have cancer and you're going to die, or when you were just getting old, or when tragedy strikes like a car accident, and for some reason we have a peace that passes understanding, they don't get to walk with that. They're alienated from that life. And it says that they have an ignorance and blindness in their hearts. They choose the life of self-gratification because they don't know any better. It's not that they're any worse than any of us in here or any of us in here would be without Jesus. They are just walking without him right now. They need a supernatural work to heal them of this ignorance and blindness and they can't fix themselves. It says that they're past feeling and they've given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. See, the heart that's not walking with Jesus is walking dead. And it will not give too much effort before it realizes this is too hard for me to try to keep God's commands and precepts in my own effort because it's not truly alive. It looks alive. It walks and talks, but has no life source, no resource of spiritual life. And so... It's existing, but only in selfishness. And this is where the unbelieving heart find, finds its joy, its happiness, and its excitement, its fulfillment in uncleanness and in greediness. They might say or even do some things that appear good, but the sinful heart inside them finds joy in rebellion. Even though they might not always do, do things that are outwardly rebellious, and maybe they do a lot of good things, but they can't ever change that the inside, they're excited by sin. That's the part that cannot be fixed. And I really had to wrestle with this topic this week as I was reading this and studying this, because I remember so many conversations as I walk around the streets and, and I talk to people about unbelievers and atheists who deny that they are evil. And, they, and I, I'll come and I'll give them the human condition that there's a problem, you have sinned. And they say, I haven't sinned. And they point to many good works that they've done. And, and the way they're doing good and they're taking care of homeless people and they're helping old ladies across the street. And they're not murdering people. And they point to these good works to say, see, look, I'm not evil. I have some good things to show you. And they feel it's evidence that they don't need God. But C.S. Lewis put it this way. If a man sees another in danger, the first instinct is to rush in and help. But a second voice in their mind intervenes and says, no, don't endanger yourself, which is in keeping with self-preservation. But then a third voice comes into play, which says, no, you ought to help. Where does this third voice come from? Asked Lewis. This is what is referred to as the oughtness of life, what you ought to do. Morality is what people do, but ethics describe what people ought to do. And yes, people know what they ought to do, but that doesn't mean that they always act according to that knowledge. See, the difference between the world and the Christian is not primarily in what they do, but in why they do it. The atheist can do good things because maybe because they don't want to go to jail or it disrupts social order or it makes them look good to others. But in their heart, and this is the key, in their heart, they are actually rebelling against the most primary law to love God with all your heart. And so they are a lawbreaker. They rebel against that first law. And so an unbeliever, that, that one break of a law tarnishes, that one violation tarnishes or infects all the good that they do. And it renders it basically worthless and garbage in the sight of God. 
So the unbeliever cannot have or do anything pure until they are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Only then can they be freed from the uncleanness and greediness, it says here, that marks their whole life right now. And that's why we don't go out and preach, you all need to be good people. Because the world thinks that they're good people. That's not our message. Our message is that God is good. And if you're not right with him, you are wrong. But God is willing to make you right. And that's our message to them. Now look in verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, that old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. We are only different than them because of Jesus. We are only able to put off this selfish lifestyle by putting on Jesus. It says, as we learn Christ, as we hear him and are instructed by him, it says we learn truth. It's the only way we can really be set free from the way the world is able to deceive us and our old man, our flesh, is ruling our lives. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And these verses aren't, aren't just telling us what to do, put off the former conduct. This isn't adding a rule for your life, saying if you're not putting off the former conduct, you need to start putting off the former conduct. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's saying how to put, on the former, put off that old man, that deceitful, corruptive nature that we possess. It's saying how and the way, how, the way to is by learning Christ, it says. By hearing Jesus, by being taught by him. That is how. And the result of it is the putting off of your old man. By spending time with Jesus, the old man gets suffocated. The old nature gets killed and crucified. We're going to get to that in just a minute. These are all descriptions of relationship, this knowing Jesus, listening to Jesus, studying Jesus, spending time with Jesus. is all relationship. The Christian life is not about a secret rule that when you keep it, it makes you a good person. It's not about trying harder to keep the Ten Commandments. It's a new life that grows out of a living relationship with the King of life, Jesus Christ. It's not, it's a tree. It's a tree that used to bear bad fruit, getting watered by a new water and becoming a new tree that produces good fruit. It's not something that happens with effort. It happens with relationship with Jesus Christ. Walking with Jesus renews the spirit of the mind, he says here. The deepest parts of who you are is the, the spirit of the mind, and it's renewed by walking with Jesus. And this can be really hard to accept for us. We like to be the ones that do something about our problems. We're American. If we want to do something, we do it. Gosh darn it. Because we're Americans. But you know, compared with salamanders and starfish, mammals have a dismally limited ability to replace their lost parts. But now reports, uh, actually this is a while ago, reports of children growing back fingertips and spleens are changing that. In 1974, Cynthia Illingsworth, an English physician specializing in emergency medicine, discovered that when children accidentally sever their fingertip down to the first joint, the best treatment is no treatment. Cleaned and covered with a bandage, the fingertip, including the nail, grows back. In 11 to 12 weeks, the new fingertip usually looks as if nothing happened to it. There seems to be three requirements 
for this to happen. The patient must be 12 years of old. The cut must not go down past the first knuckle. And surgeons must keep their hands off of it. Any operation performed on the finger destroys its ability to come back. And the last condition is the hardest to accept, admits Dr. Michael Bleicher, a pediatric surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. The Bible teaches us that our sin, that corrupted sin nature that's inside us, the old man, and I just picture an old, crotchety, old, mean guy living inside me, that, that the source of that is in the heart. And all our struggles with sin originate from the heart. And so we need the heart or the spirit of the mind to be renewed. And this is an outward action. This is that passive action where, where God has to do it for us. We can't do it ourselves. Personal transformation from the heart is a process by which the spirit of God uses the word of God to change us and make us like Christ. And it's a lifelong process. We have to let the man do his thing. Let Jesus do his thing in your life. You walk with him, spend time with him, read the word, abide there, and see what fingertips he grows back. And so this renewal process, let me show you what it looks like here in 2014 in Denver, Colorado. This is what it looks like. Number one, you come to Jesus, believing that he's all-powerful and he's everything that you need. If you don't come to him like that, if you're coming to him just testing him out, you're not going to be renewed. You have to come to him believing Jesus is God and all-powerful and able and willing to help you. That's step one in this renewal process. Step two is you read the word. Step one, you come to Jesus. Step two, you read the word. And so you're reading the Bible. You're spending time there. And then you come across something that convicts you. And the Spirit says, this doesn't line up with me. Your life, my life, no, not the same thing. And so as you're reading the word, you repent. You say, this, this is right. If anything in my life disagrees with this, I repent. I change. I don't try to change this. I don't try to let this be changed. I am the one who repents and turns to this. And I agree with God, which is what repentance is, that this is right and I'm wrong. So you come to Jesus, believe that he's God, believe he's everything you need. Number two, you read the Bible, and as you're reading, you repent. And number three, then you walk by faith. You step forward to do the right thing with your new understanding of God's will that you just read. So that's, that act of repenting is the first step in a walk of faith. And then the next step, you say, okay, I learned my lesson. I'm, that's wrong. So I'm going to take, I'm going to walk towards the Lord. I'm going to walk in his will. I'm going to walk pleasing to the Lord. And now, though, I'm in dependence on him to change me because I believe he's powerful, not me. This isn't a walk of how great I am. This isn't a walk of a marathon. I'm scared to do a marathon. Are you guys, anyone marathon? All right, you terrify me. Yeah. So it's like, I know that my efforts would fail after like 100 yards, and I'd be like, hang on. And it wouldn't go good at all. Because it's according to my efforts. Marathons are the perfect picture of human effort. But we have a marathon in front of us, so we got to walk by faith, not trusting in our own resources, but in God's. And that is how to put on the new man. What I just described to you is how you put on the new man. We're supposed to take off the old man, the way he did things with his own resources and in his own way, with his deceitful thoughts. And we renounce any dependency on the flesh and its ways and its resources. 
and we put on this new man. We come to Jesus in humility and faith. We read the word and we repent as he speaks to you. Then we just walk in the spirit, in this newness of life, which it says is created in God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the way we walk. That's what we're going after, that life that's created by God. It's not earned by efforts. It's created by God. It's not given to those who are worthy. It's created by God. It's a gift given by God. But this old man, nothing is more vile and deceitful than what's inside of you and inside of me. He tries to hide. He doesn't even want you to know how wicked and vile he is. He always lusts. He always takes. He always lies and desires to be selfish and to, be, and to rule and to be higher. He blinds eyes. He hardens hearts. He confuses your mind. And he always devastates our life wasting everything. And in the end, the man always ends in corruption or death, sadness, confusion. He suffocates the life of the soul. He always promises, but never can perform what he says he will. How many times have you heard someone say, I promise I'm never doing that again? How many times have you said, I promise, I'm never doing that again. And that is the voice of the old man echoing, saying, I got this. God, I don't need you. I got this. But the old man is deceitful, and he can't do it. And he's really just saying, I want you off my back for a little while so I can figure out a more deceitful and tricky way to get, get what I want and not have to submit to God. And that's the old man. Always wants to be gratified and indulged. And we are called to put him off daily, hourly. This is our task. Every time he lifts his deceitful little head, we are to put our heels on his neck and choke him out. It's not a gentle task. We're not to say, oh, baby, I know you want to be gratified. And so let me just hang on a little while. Maybe later tonight we'll get you yours. That is not what Jesus is asking us to do. Jesus is asking us to crucify our flesh, our old man, kill it, nail it to the cross. And that old man is not going to like it very much. He's going to weep and wail. And he's going to scream, don't you love me? Aren't Christians supposed to be loving? Why don't you want me to have something that's, that's so nice? And every time the desire to gratify our old man comes, we are called to kill it for the new man, for Jesus. The new man is Jesus. It's the image of God being formed in our life. That's what this new man is. And Jesus is the perfect image of God. And so as you are walking with him, you're becoming like him, his image. And it it has no room for the old man. Jesus has no room there. The worst thing in a Christian's life is not trials. The worst thing is not persecution. It's the daily trouble that our old man makes for us through its deceit and lust. And can I get an amen? amen. Because we, our old man, is the source of all the lust that causes devastation in our relationships. It's in there. And it's not going away until you die. But we walk in the new man. He, see, he puts it here in the past tense. He says, but you haven't learned Christ like this. We put him on in faith, hope, and love. <clears throat> Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. 
Well, we put on this new man in faith, believing in the word that Jesus spoke, that he would be our lives if we turn to him. We put him on in hope that all our trials and struggles with the old man and with the external things will end in victory because of the power he's given to us. And we put him on in love because we grow to love Jesus. We grow to love the Lord and love his word and love his people and his ways. And the more you grow to love one man, the more you'll grow to hate the other man. When you first get saved, you love your old man. But as you get to know Jesus, and as you fall in love with him, and as you see his grace and the amazing attractiveness of his spirit, you begin to loathe your own flesh, your old man. You begin to feel that there's nothing you would rather do than die and have that old man dead so that you could just experience the freedom of being with Christ and never offending him again because you love Jesus. And as we grow to love Jesus, you see then his precepts, his ways, his laws are never a burden to us. They are our joy. And I'd say the biggest reason people are de-churched today is because they feel like church is just burdensome. Why would I not want to sleep with my girlfriend? Why would I not want to do drugs? Why would I not? Why would I want to put myself under all those restrictions and rules? And Jesus saying, if I even look at a woman to lust, I've committed adultery. That, that's too difficult. That's a burden and a bondage that I don't want. And nothing is further from reality. Because as you know, when you fall in love with Jesus, when you're walking with him and you're in his word, it becomes your joy to keep his commands. There is no bondage in following Jesus and acting the way that he wants you to. You're just becoming a good tree and good fruit is just coming out of you. I'll tell you where there is bondage though and that is in sin. There is only freedom in the new man. In following and obeying Jesus, we are totally free. No wrath, no bondage, no fear, no guilt, no shame, no more running, running from God. Only peace and freedom are there with the new man. We are the most free people in the world. There is only unity with the Father. It's no longer he's an angry, scary old man. He's your father who you would run to with any problem. Dad, I just made a huge mistake and you run to him, not away from him, knowing that he is not going to refuse you. He is not going to say, you've blown it for the last time and death now. He'll say, you blew it and love to you. I love you, I care about you, and the death that you earned goes to Jesus, you get his life. And that's a totally different life. In, in John chapter 8, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But I speak to everyone in here, that if you desire to walk in the hidden ways, if you desire to let that old man run your life or fulfill his lust or have his fun, you will reap what you sow. Nothing good comes of it. Only corruption, only death. But there's a way to kill him. There's a way to put his, your foot on his throat and suffocate him. Come to Jesus, read the Bible, and walk in faith. That's your, your heel on the throat of the old man. He cannot live under those circumstances. So I invite you to do that with me. I need it just as much as you. My old man is stinky and brutal, and he's a, he's a mean old guy. 
and I wish he would die. And so day by day, I have to put him back on the cross. I have to nail him up there. And that's what we are called to do here in Ephesians chapter 4. We kill him and then we let God do his thing by restoring and renewing our life. Let's pray. Jesus, we, Lord, give this time, Lord, back into your hands. And Lord, I believe that your spirit has maybe identified areas where we are letting our old man have his fun. Be satisfied. And God, we do not know that what we reap, we will sow. And God, I pray that we would all repent. We would all come back to you in that beauty of coming to a, a father who's so full of love and so full of compassion that you run and throw your arms around us, Lord God. And we repent for letting our old man run our lives. And God, we just choose to walk in the spirit, that we choose to put on the new man, that we choose to let you rule our lives, to let you be the fruit that comes in our lives. And maybe you are out there today and you have never known Jesus as your savior and you have never made a decision to follow him, to turn to him and to give him your life and commit to walking every day with him, to repenting of your sins. And I invite you right now to pray with me. I beg you, I exhort you, turn to the Lord and see the life that he has to offer you. And, I, and you can just pray with me right now. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross as a substitute for my sin. I believe that you love me and I believe that you are everything I need. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and with the new man and help me daily to crucify my old man to turn away hourly from the desires that will rise up in my heart to please myself and to turn Jesus to you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.